Hi, I'm Lisa Morton, founder of Roland Dransfield PR. Welcome to We Built This City. With this podcast, I wanted to shine a light on the people who have put the heart into modern Manchester. You can build a city with bricks and mortar, but it's the people that make Manchester great. People like my guest, Lem Sissay. For me, it was a Manchester miracle. It really was. I had nothing, man, except for who I was and what I believed. Lem is a poet, playwright and best-selling author. He has four doctorates and an MBE for his services to literature. He's also Chancellor of the University of Manchester. Lem's really passionate about supporting kids in care, having been a child in care himself. And much of his work tells the story of his search for his birth mother. It was in Manchester that Lem truly found his feet as a poet. His poems are painted on the sides of buildings in the city and Lem himself has said, Manchester gave me wings. You're going to hear about the Manchester that took a chance and gave him a job, where he made friends and parted, and you're going to hear about the Manchester that helped support not only him, but other brilliant creative people like John Thompson, Carolina Hearn, Steve Coogan and Henry Normal. So I wanted to know, what is it about Manchester that Lem loved so much? And what is it about Lem that made Manchester love him back the same? Lem, thanks so much for joining me on We Built This City. Thanks. It's good to be here. You're a born and bred Mancunian and you spent a huge part of your life in Manchester, which we'll talk about. And I always researched my guests, but with you, there was literally so much to delve into. I almost didn't know where to start and I spent a few hours scratching my head yesterday. But I thought a good place to start would be to talk about your book that went straight into number one in the Sunday Times bestseller list, which is called My Name Is Why. Could you sum that book up for us? Yeah, I suppose in context with this podcast, we built this city. I'm a child of the Northwest. And like a lot of people in Manchester, I came here to grow. But I grew up about 10 miles outside of Manchester, 12 miles outside of Manchester in a few small villages. Um, and my book, my memoir, My Name Is Why, is about how I arrived in uh, Lancashire and what happened to my mother and what happened to me. Um, I was brought up in children's homes. I was fostered for the first 12 years. And the book is all about that, really. I mean, it's about how, for example for 18 years of my life, the government was my legal parent. So Wigan Metropolitan Council was my legal parent. And uh, it's about discovering what really happened to my mum and what really happened to me in those 18 years. It's absolutely heartbreaking to read that story. And the thing that really impacted me was the fact that you didn't know that your mum had actually written to Wigan to ask if she could have you back and she'd been told that you were doing fine and that wasn't going to happen. Yeah, and, you know, I wasn't taken into the social services for any other reason than my mother needed some help while she was in this country to study for her education. Found herself pregnant, was put in a mother and baby's home. Then the social worker said to her, 
will you sign the adoption papers? And she refused to because she wanted me fostered for a short period of time. And then um, I didn't see her again. You know, she was wiped from my mind. And I was brought up with foster parents for 12 years who said that they were my real parent, or said that they were my mum and dad and that my birth mother really didn't want me and she'd rejected me, etc., etc. And then they put me in children's homes at 12 and then I was held in a series of children's homes and then let go at 18. And it's from that point onwards that I began the search for my for mum my and my family and stuff. And what I then can't get my head around is that you had new foster parents, but then they decided that they didn't want you. And so that was a, another rejection. Lisa, I think the deceit was that they had told me that they were my mum and dad forever and mm. that this was my family and they taught me to say mum and dad I, I mean I didn't have words when I went to them you know so that was the the thing that was wrong I kind of understand that they had their own problems it's just that they couldn't admit to them so the foster child became the fall guy for what were some quite serious problems in their own family and with their own development Essentially, they were naive. There's a saying, which is, it's ironic, actually, but it's, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. They had good intentions, you know, their intentions were to, to help somebody. But the reality um, didn't stack up. For the them. reality didn't stack mm. up. No. It's interesting because my ex-husband, who is the father of my two amazing kids um, mm. he found out that he had been adopted at birth mm. and like you his name wasn't the name that he'd been given mm. and he also found probably at a fairly young age that his adopted parents weren't that keen on him either mm -hmm. and had, were quite vocal about the fact that they made the wrong decision and he lived with that oh God, with it in cruel. his life mm. and he didn't then go and try and find his birth parents because I think he just couldn't face a possible rejection again by by them so I understand very much about having to find out or not knowing who you are and trying to you know your journey to find out who you are a lot of adopted children have problems with their parents but let me just put this out there a lot of children have problems with their parents it equates the same way however in your ex's case the crime really is to say we've made a mistake. That invalidates or tries to invalidate the child's experience, you know. Mm. It really does sort of inject a sense of insecurity right at the heart mm. of the person who's been adopted. Because I do believe that adoption is, you know, an adopting parent is a beautiful thing. And exactly the same as a birth parent, to be honest. As a birth parent, each child is different. Well, if you adopt a child, that child is different as well. So there you go. Mm -hmm. And I know too many successful adoptions to think that it doesn't work. Yeah. But to instill in a child that there is something intrinsically wrong with them, that you didn't want to do it in the first place, is I think one of the cruelest things that one human being can do to another. Mm -hmm. I really do. And that's something you do take with you for the rest of your life, whether you Well, you, you know... Lisa, therapy is a great thing and it's the best thing I ever did. And I don't mean to sort of build a house of cards around your own failings, but I do mean it is therapy is a way of 
exercising yourself as in physical exercise. It's a, it's a mental exercise in looking at some of these horrible gifts that we've been given of deception and lies from parents. Uh, and again, that's not something that's unique to an adopted person or a fostered person as I was. What was your experience when you realised that day when you got your birth certificate and you saw that your name wasn't Norman, it was Lem? How did that impact you? Well, when I received my birth certificate, at, I was about 16 and a half, 17 years of age. And I was given my birth certificate because I was going to be leaving the children's homes at 18. When I received the birth certificate and it had my name on it and it had my mother's name on it, that there was proof to me that I had been deceived in some way out of knowing what my name was and out of knowing what my mother's name was. So it was like a, a flare you know, that shone light out into the darkness to say, there's a lot more to this story, Lem, <laughs> than you know. You've got to keep digging to find out the truth. And did you decide that you were going to start digging straight away as Lem? Well, you know, I'm 18. You know what I mean? I'm 18 years of age. I've, I've, I don't know anybody who's known me for longer than a year and a half because I was in a series of different children's homes. My foster parents would never speak to me, etc., etc. So uh, I'm, I'm sort of in Lancashire, in a village. I'm like any 18-year-old in the village. I'm absolutely dying to get out of it. That's just being 18. But I had no relativity. I had an apartment. I had nobody either. I had no mum, dad, sisters, brothers, aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents, granddad. I had nobody to blame, nobody who cared enough to feel responsible for my uh, anger or confusion at what had happened to me. And one of the greatest gifts I was given was just a teeny bit of insight. And I remember thinking then, so this isn't me reassessing 18-year-olds, this is what I thought then. I thought, if there are 99 people in this village who are not good, and there's one who is good, then if I move to the city, there might be 198 people who are not good, but there'll be two that are. That, that kind of logic. But I also wanted to find out who I was and what was, what, what was I relative to. And I knew I couldn't do that in the little village that I was brought, villages that I was brought up in. And Manchester had always been glinting on the horizon across the Lancashire Plain. I could actually, I could actually see it from the, the what's called the Pretoria Hills yeah. uh, in Atherton, which is the final village that I was brought up in. And people always spoke about Manchester as being a place where you can get mugged and they talked about Moss Side as a very terrible place without acknowledging that Manchester City football ground was right at the heart of Moss Side. <laughs> Thousands of people came from all over the country to go to Moss Side, but nobody made that connection. They were quite happy to tell the stories of muggings and blah, blah, and destitute housing and that kind of thing. But they weren't willing to say, well, actually, you know, my, my uncle goes there every Saturday <laughs> to watch football. It's funny how the narrative of a city can be shaped. And the more people that believe it, the more people that don't contest it. It's incredible. Um, I'd run away to Manchester when I was in Atherton. I ran away barefoot. 
Gosh, to, did you? Yeah, to Manchester. I remember I slept outside of, it wasn't Murray's Records in Moss Side. There was another record shop. And I slept outside of, I slept outside of that. <laughs> when you were a teenager? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, walked up the East Lanks Road. No Google Maps then, right? No, absolutely. Walked up <laughs> Just the East Lanks straight Road. straight line. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a pretty straight line, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. The East Lanks Road, that's sort of, it's like a Roman road, isn't it? Straight yeah. between Liverpool and Manchester. Manchester, yeah. But you've done that before, haven't you? I read that you'd one day, did you wake up and you just wanted to, is that the same story where you just walked oh, into Manchester from Atherton? I did that in a year ago this weekend. I just opened my front door, live in sale, and I yeah. just opened the door and I thought, I need to go, I'm walking into town. And I just walked in and it was a wow. beautiful day and I just felt I needed to feel connected and I just carried on walking. <laughs> So All great. down the canal, down the canal past Old Trafford and then yeah. through Castlefield and it, it was amazing. So yeah, you do get that pull, don't you? Oh, it's city. such a... In Lancashire, right, all over Lancashire, there are hills like Winter's Hill, is it? Yeah, Winter Hill, yeah. Uh, Rivington Pike, etc. Mm. And some of them have beacons on them from a long, long time ago. And I think it's connected to the war, possibly. Mm-hmm. Maybe mm. it goes back even further. Pendle Hill as well, yes. I think. Yeah, I got Werneth Low. yeah. Yeah. So Manchester was this giant mountain with a really amazingly powerful torch on the top of it, you know, a flame, mm. and it sort of drew me. It was drew me. It was very um, powerful. And So you moved from Atherton and came to Manchester and, and moved to Hume. Was that in the late 80s? Oh, mid, mid-85. Right, yeah. I came to live in, I lived in Hume, on the on the really university side of Hume, actually, a mm-hmm. place called Brackenbury Walk. Yeah. A year later, I moved on to William Kent Crescent, part of Hume, mm-hmm. the Crescents, which I'm actually, I'm actually, it's funny, I'm talking to you now, I'm writing about this for the follow-up to My Name Is Why, so oh, it's, it's kind of, I've described Robert Adam Crescent as like um, a leviathan, you know, because I could see it out of my back window, a, a giant whale where the ribs are uh, exposed, you know. So basically I came into the excitement of Manchester. At the time, Dave Haslam was referred to it as being place for dreamers, Hume, at the time. It so really is it was. a very, I mean, what's it like? Because a lot of the families had moved the families out by then. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I, I, yeah. I mean, I had no relativity to the familial side of Hume. I had a lot of relativity to the waifs and strays Mm. and dogs of heaven. And they were like a a live art kind of crazy anarchy kind of based installation makers. And um, there was the kitchen and Chris Jam. There was blues dances, like bars in Moss Side and well, houses actually it became parties, and there was <laughs> the Reno as well. I went there a few times, and you just got a sense in Hume in the mid eighties, and you know there are other places that probably do this now, but you just got this sense that you were somehow tuned into the city. So anything that was happening in the city that was good, you would know about. You'd know about the right clubs, the right. Bands that are coming, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and you'd sort of go outside of Hume to the Ritz <laughs> to see yeah. a live band, or you know what I mean. And you could walk home or to the Hacienda, 
So that was like going into town from yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you could walk into town. You know, I'm sure we got taxis a few times, but you could walk to the Hacienda and walk home again as well, or even get breakfast at a late night, early morning breakfast place, you know, or find yourself falling over in the press club <laughs> yes. or getting thrown out of the say, press the club. press club oh, it just was brilliant, wasn't it? And your feet stuck to the floor completely. Some great nights They certainly there. did, yeah. The staff <laughs> were great there. Yeah, yeah. And you would see a mixture in inside the press club of like mm. just everybody from off-duty to police to mm. the people who've Princes. been doing the shows, you know, it's kind of a safe place. It was a total family there. Well, you had a new family for the night every time you went there, didn't you? That's that was right. that kind of feeling. Just to say that about the rose-tinted glasses about Press Club and Manchester, and you know, the, there are a lot of people who came through this beautiful time in Manchester and much lauded, mm. but who who didn't make it, you know. By make it, I don't mean be famous or be known. I, I just mean be become functioning adults. You know, a lot of people, yeah. you know, fell by the wayside. It's really easy for us to, for me to make it all sound super electric, but actually there's a lot of addictions and a lot of suicides and a lot of dysfunctional friendships and relationships and stuff. Mm. You know, I come out of it now and I'd say, you know, there's only a couple of people really that I'm close to that I was close to then, you know. Lem, were you then part of that Manchester family with this, like John Thompson who's on the podcast, Carolina Hearn and that, you know, Henry Normal. That must have been a brilliant time to be in Manchester. Yeah, we were. It was John Thompson, Henry Normal, Johnny Dangerously, I Am Clue, Carolina Hearn, Steve Coogan. We came across each other constantly through doing live gigs. And this is before comedy had split so kind of unceremoniously, I think, from live music and from poetry. This is when they all performed together, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think Steve Coogan could see the writing on the wall, uh, actually, and John Thompson as well. And it's been a real pleasure in my life to watch all of these incredible careers develop and become the culture makers. There would be no goggle box if there wasn't a royal family. There'd be no royal family without Craig Cash, Mm. Carolina Hearn, Henry Normal and Steve Coogan because Baby Cow Productions were also making the royal family. So we're talking about serious change makers and Mm. and that programme came from probably Craig and uh, Caroline but definitely from Henry Normal who used to say to me, why can't we have a TV programme where people do what we did when we were kids, which is watch TV? <laughs> yeah. That's what the royal family was. And then when they made it, there must have been a lot of people saying, well, I'm not watching people. I remember people saying that. I'm not watching people watching TV. But they did. Oh, and you know, I mean, look what we do now with Gogglebox. It's one of the most popular TV shows, isn't it? But Absolutely. that royal family was incredible i'm from salford and everybody in salford that was just like looking into a salford living room it was so relatable it's one of the favorite programs of all time the royal family yeah yeah. and carolina hearn i mean what a loss because she was just she was my absolute heroine i thought she was amazing yeah and we talk about actually we links because caroline struggled with alcohol i think Mm. she said it you know it's not i'm not exposing anything there 
and not that that is the reason that she passed away actually but the quality of life that she deserved um a lot of the time she didn't feel like she had it mm. but for me anyway to watch these incredible luminaries appears you know just go on to just hit right at the heart of popular culture yeah. right to this day you know yeah. to this time with Steve Coogan right to this day is a joy yeah. You know, and then to watch Johnny Dangerously from I Am Clute, you know, rise up with I Am Clute. And then to see your elbows, you know, and to just look at Noel Gallagher and, and Liam and what they did at that time. And so you had all parts of culture all happening, like a major, major firework display. You could almost put your hand on the ground and, and hear bass lines from the night before you know and feel them <laughs> there was some, there really was that. something yeah. and it's good to look back at because i didn't know at the time and it's such a legacy isn't it completely i'll tell you who knew uh tony wilson yeah he knew what he was creating that's it's only afterwards that i realize you know he was so good to me man he got me on so many things. His talk program where he was doing a talk with a live audience, uh, Another Side of Midnight. Yeah. Um, he had me on that a couple of times. Face to Face, he did this one interview, which I've just recalled actually on a BBC documentary about me, that he did that. And I didn't know at the time, did I? And I often thought, I often thought of all oh, this big shot guys. No, I didn't think it was him. I thought it was his company and he was, quote, just the presenter. Right but it was never the case. So much. Yeah. And I I used to watch that show on a Friday night. And everybody on the podcast pretty much has had, says amazing things about him, but also that he did touch so many people's lives and he he was such a facilitator, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Yeah. And you talked about, well, you first book of poetry which you published yourself didn't you yeah. paid for was it by cleaning gutters you managed yeah to yeah yeah clean gutters in Allerton. great story yeah yeah aswad gutter cleaning service <laughs> and i think tony mentions it actually in that interview with him i think so yes yeah does he yeah i think I so think on, the, on the in the doc the bbc documentary yeah yeah, yeah. Yantop, yeah. yeah yeah definitely because it made me laugh because i had um i had a car washing round from eight and I never, I never got any more pocket money after that. So I, I yeah. cleaned cars and you were cleaning gutters. That book of poetry you said was your bridge to Manchester. Yeah, what did you yeah, mean by that? Yeah. Well, I, I brought it to Manchester. I did my first reading because of it at the Abbasindi Cooperative in Moss Side. I took it to Common Word, which was a community publishing house in Manchester. Mm. Because, you know, all of these events and venues and stuff they don't happen without a groundswell of energy and respect for grassroots whether it's grassroots music whether it's grassroots poetry and stuff and this was a common word was a grassroots organization whose job was to promote support and encourage writers who otherwise wouldn't be published Mm. Women writers, gay writers, Mm. black writers, working class writers specifically. And in fact, the working class nature actually goes through all of those different, those different uh, sort of uh, definitions. And so I went into Common Word, I took my book with me. And within a year, I was working as a literature development worker in Common Word. I applied for a job and I got it. Mm. But what I had was boundless energy 
absolute focus and I was committed. You could see that in the book, you know. So I took that to the job interview and I got the job. And, and years later, I looked back at the inside the filing cabinet, which looked, looked at all of the other applicants. And they were all degree this, degree that, university of this. And I had none of that, mm. you know. So it's kind of like, a, for me, it was a Manchester miracle. <laughs> you know, it really was. I had nothing, man, except yeah. for who I was and what I believed. Which shone out, obviously, uh, yeah. you know, against those CVs, isn't it? And that's what Manchester's about, isn't it, yeah. surely? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that, it, proved, it proved itself to me to be about that. And mm. and people encouraged me to do live gigs as well and, and sort of like, so, if, you know, one day it was the Mossside Library and the Abyssindi Cooperative, which is a cooperative of black, black women, basically, right in the heart of Manchester. It was pretty damn radical. And then it, you know, then it was the free trade hall and it was the anti-apartheid events at the town hall and at the, oh, there's a place on College Road in Wally Range. It's, it's a miners. It's like a, looks a beautiful building. It's where the unions were anyway. There were all these events, the trade union uh, place on in uh, near Harter Street off Princess Road. All of these places which have a history. So, Lem, what do you think about the Manchester International Festival? Well, you know, I've got to declare I'm artistic advisor to the Manchester International <laughs> Festival and I'm working with Hans Ulrich Obrist, who mm-hmm. is a brilliant uh, curator from the Serpentine Gallery in London and we were launching an exhibition on the 1st of July. I love Manchester International Festival. I think it brings in lots of international talent to engage with the Manchester talent and yeah it's going to feed into the factory which is an interesting and incredible big development mm. yeah I mean Manchester should have an international festival yeah it yeah. deserves it and we've me and you have seen festivals go through all different iterations is that the yeah, word you know that's the word, yeah. And that's been interesting. And, you know, I remember being in Manchester and moaning about the Manchester Festival, as I thought it was, think it was called there, saying, oh, they never book, never book me, you know, <laughs> just putting myself right into the middle of the equation. Um, and we have to be careful of that sometimes. Mm. It's very easy to out yourself as a villager. <laughs> what about me, eh? They're bringing this thingy of the big, this, this shiny thing. I mean, that's, I'm talking about myself, you know, there's... It's very easy to fall into that, and it's not necessarily a Manchester thing, but it's a it's a thing. No, the Manchester International Festival is just acknowledges this magnificent energy that Manchester has, mm. and basically, it's an advert for Manchester uh, uh, across the world because all of those artists go away, talk to their respective countries, speaking about how brilliant this place yeah. is. And we've made it our own, haven't we? I mean, that's what you have to do. If you bring anything here, we say to our clients, don't think you can just drop something into the city. Yeah, we've got to make it. It's our idea. Yeah, yeah and we have to own it. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's been wonderful. I mean, I've abs- I absolutely loved the International Festival. I've seen some absolutely bonkers stuff, but yeah. then some stuff that stayed with me. And the last yeah. festival, there was the, I think it was the, the parade in Piccadilly Gardens where I just... Average people did came out. Did you? Oh, you? Yeah. yeah. I actually ended up standing next to Sir Richard Lee just yeah. by fluke and we were both in tears I was so moved by that yeah. that was just 
really incredible moment in time. Talking about moments in time, you'd performed Let There Be Peace at the Manchester Together with One Voice concert in 2018 after the arena bomb. What do you think that that event at that time in Manchester's history has done for the city? I've been a poet all of my life. And I've travelled all over the world to read poetry. And I see it in everything. I see it in adverts on television. I see it when the president in America, each time there's a president, there's a poem and a poet that comes out. For Bill Clinton, it was Maya Angelou. And for this last one, um, it was the young woman, you know, and people were speaking about her poem around the world. I'm a poetry junkie in my own secret kind of way. And I have never, ever experienced a better placed poem than This Is The Place by Tony Walsh. The right person reading the right poem to people who need it like it's oxygen. Who need it like it's oxygen. So at those times, often poems get commissioned and written, etc., etc. But as somebody who's travelled the world as a poet, on stages, all over the place, and who's watched various things happen. You could think of like John Cooper Clark and Chicken Town. Poems will get used and known but to people. They'll get known to people for actually capturing something that everybody's concerned with. It's never been done better than Tony Walsh's poem, ever. That one poem is the rarest performance of a poem that I've ever seen. And it was commissioned by Forever Manchester a few weeks before that, yeah. with no intent, just yeah, commissioned yeah. anyway, wasn't it? It was for an, it was the Chamber of Commerce event. This is what I mean by was, all the stars aligning. Totally, yeah. Because to stand in the square that night for that vigil and hear that, I mean, I was there. Now it makes me gives me goosebumps, and yeah. it was utterly emotional. You know, it, you're right. And the thing about poetry. If you say poetry, some people they'll just cloud over, won't they? They'll, 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 they do, yeah. If you actually look at it, we have it at major moments in our life, Absolutely. celebrations or death. What does it do? That is it a bridge in a way, isn't it? Well, you know, if you look at Guy Garvey's lyrics, you know, and you look at some of some of Oasis's lyrics, but I mean, but more more Guy Garvey actually. And I'm trying to think of other parts. Gosh, if you look at I Am Clute's lyrics and Johnny Dangerously's lyrics, you know, me and Henry Normal, for example, our poems will get used at people's funerals. I've got a poem that gets used at people's weddings like every... Now it's about every month I'll receive an email from somebody saying, we read your poem at our wedding. It's because when it's too beautiful, shocking or hurtful for words, there's poetry. Yeah. You see, there's poetry. And that's when we turn, somebody dies and we want to read a poem at their funeral. A baby's born, we want to read a poem or write a poem. Often where death is and life is, we see. Yeah. I used to write poetry all the time when I was a kid. Yeah. Breakups and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And, it, and it definitely, you know, gets very cathartic. One of the things that's really important to us at Roland Dransfield is legacy. There's so much I could talk to you about with that. But I just wanted to ask you about the landmark poems, which for people listening to this podcast, you may have seen on the sides of buildings across the country. They started here in Manchester, including one on the side of the Gemini Cafe on Oxford Road. And there's another one which became very well known on the side of a pub. So what are they and how did they come about? I mean, the most exciting landmark poem is the one on the side of Hardy's Well Pub, 
because it's disappearing now. It's going to be gone forever soon. But that became a landmark. And it and you, you can't make a landmark. You can't say, I'm going to establish a landmark now. You can't do it. Do you remember the, <laughs> do you remember the big explosion outside of the new city stadium? Yeah. Do you remember that sculpture? It's gone. Nobody's missing it. <laughs> yeah. You know, so even as big as it was, it mm. wasn't the landmark. Fact is, is probably the actual the actual uh, pitch is the landmark, isn't it? The actual yeah. structure of the thing, but but um um but but people chose that. They'd be like, it's near the pub with the poem on the side of it, or the poem yeah. with the pub on the side of it. You know, you turn right there. I'll meet you there. You know, and they would have a relationship with it as they come down that that uh, Oxford Road there, and um. And that, that makes me proud that the people chose that. And Gemini is a good example of that as well. I'm really proud of that. And that was actually signed off by Richard Lease. We had to, Sir Richard Lease, we had to yeah. get his permission for that. And um, so I'm proud that's, of that for that reason. That's an amazing legacy. And then just talking about Oxford Road, you've been Chancellor of the University of Manchester, haven't you, since 2015. Have, yeah. You've made some major changes there. What have you enjoyed about what that? What have I been up to? Mm. Well, it's a ceremonial role, mine. So what am I proud of? I'm proud of the fact they support the Christmas dinners, which is for care leavers. I'm proud of the Equity and Merit Scholarship Scheme, which gets scholarships to students from around the world to come to Manchester. I'm proud very much so of being one of the few universities of this stature that is run by a a woman, which is um, not just any woman, actually, it's a scientist. Nancy Rothwell. Nancy, yeah. And I'm basically I'm proud to give degrees to students who've been studying there. How important do you think the University of Manchester is as an institution to kind of represent what Manchester's about? Oh, so much comes from the university and from the uh, Metropolitan University as yeah. well. So much talent goes sort of falls back into the city. You know, I think I think about Tom Bloxham, talking about my generation. You know, Tom Bloxham and how he's been part of the development of the city and I think of the John Thompsons and Steve Coogan's who went to Manchester Met mm. you know and Kathy Burks and the there's just so many who've fed back into Manchester and then promoted Manchester around the world you know I don't think people have to stay in Manchester to be a part of Manchester and I know that feels counterintuitive but quite often our children will say well I want to live in Brisbane (laughs) and you know and we don't say we don't say to them oh no you've got to live in Manchester if you're from Manchester (laughs) do you know what I mean they they will go and they will experience the world but they take it with them you don't sell it down the river you take it with you It's a really great PR job, isn't it? I mean, literally, you can take export Manchester. And we had an expression in our family, my gran, roots and wings. They were kind of referring to both our family, that you give your kids the roots and then you give them the wings. But also, I think that's Manchester. Oh, that's lovely. Hey, you've got to write that down, man. Include that in your PR that's brilliant <laughs> but is it, roots it, it, it and wings of, yeah that's that's a, a value and that's how you should never believe that people are your accessories or your kids aren't your accessories you, yeah. you know you have no while so let them go and that's yeah. your 
but I think Manchester's the same. I think right. we are rooted in the city. Yeah. So when you're not in Manchester, I mean, when was the last time you were here? Well, I was here, I was in Manchester. It's funny, isn't it? I was here. I was in Manchester a few weeks, about two weeks back, maybe two and a half weeks back. And I was filming at Contact Theatre for my friend Sophie Willen. And Sophie Willen has a BBC series coming out called Alma's Not Normal. It's based in Bolton, but we were filming in Manchester at Contact Theatre, which is where both me and Sophie met. And I'm playing a director who's going to possibly employ her. And she's on the stage at the Contact, and I'm sat in the audience. Not sat in the audience, sorry, sat in in the audience's seats, judging whether she'll get this job or not. Yeah, we, we, we met there. So it's great to be filming back there and talking about people bringing stuff back. You know, that's a really good example mm-hmm. is Sophie came to London for a year, thought, you know what? Everybody's running around here like headless chickens. Why don't I run around like a headless chicken in Manchester where I know everybody <laughs> and everybody knows me, you know, etc. So she did the London thing and then came back and, and now she's filming and she's bringing a London film company to Manchester to work with Manchester uh, crew, you know, it all feeds back, man. Absolutely. Absolutely absolutely wonderful. And that, by the way, Sophie is on the edge of sort of massive fame. She's just been nominated for a BAFTA for her pilot of Alma's Not Normal, which which tells you everything. Definitely. Yeah, I followed her on Instagram this week, and oh, she's funny. She, Do you like yeah, it? yeah, very much so. Yeah, she's funny. very funny. It's true. I was my daughter was up from university a few weeks ago, and we sat outside Piccolino's um, yeah. on the square. Yeah, and it was the first week. You know, it's nice weather, and she was with a boyfriend who's yeah. from she met at uni, and he couldn't believe how many people were just come around the corner and stop and say hi you know there's yeah. so it's just such a community there's a microcosm of Manchester community on the corner of Albert Square and it yeah. made me realize like how it doesn't matter if you go away if you, if you establish those relationships in Manchester they're there forever if you, if you put put it's into so them true. yeah it's the, so val- the value of that actually is immense and it's not something that I find in London at all mm. um I know a lot of people here a lot of people know me but um the value of every time I come to Manchester, people say hello on the street. Mm. And um, I think there's a real value in that. Like, mm. like, you know, Brian Cox, when I became chancellor, said in an unconnected interview to my chancellorship, he said, inspiration is economically quantifiable. Isn't that amazing? Because right. if you think about it, <laughs> why would we allow money to be spent on going to the moon... If the community as a whole was not inspired by going to the moon, there's nothing on the moon. (laughs) Yes. But from childhood, you know, you'll think, oh, I want to be a spaceman, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We're inspired by the idea. Mm. And therefore, we're not complaining about millions of pounds being spent on it. Mm. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that inspiration (laughs) is economically quantifiable. And Tony Wilson knew that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Just talking about values. I mean, we obviously talk about at Roland Dransfield, how important they are and trying to get them right. And once you figure out what you stand for, it means you can knock out of your life stuff that doesn't work for you. 
And I suppose a lot of people say their values come from how they were brought up. So I just was interested yeah. to ask you, how, how has that been for you? Well, it's a really, really good question. And I think that, you know, my foster parents were Christians, right? Like, and so they were Baptists, I should say. So there was a really strong sense of right and wrong from my earliest period of life. If you imagine what pe- the way people talk about the Catholic religion as being one where knowing right and wrong is important, admitting your guilt is important, et cetera, et cetera. So I think I, lo- I learned about the importance of values very early. But I also learned about the hypocrisy of the people who taught me my value system, mm. which led me to possibly feel that I distrusted the values that I've been given. But the top and bottom of it is that I have learned a value system which I know is more valuable than anything I've got. Mm-hmm. And funnily enough, I've also been so lucky to have learned that you will achieve more with a value system than without one. Yeah. It took you know, me a long time to learn, though, and a lot of mistakes, all right? And a lot of, you know, so I'm not being holier than thou. No, I totally understand. I feel the same. It's taken me a long time. We did that piece of work, and really, I did it for the business, but really I was doing it for myself. Yeah. Um, I figured out that if I didn't know what my own values were, then I couldn't, I wouldn't know when people were trying to undermine them. Yeah. And so yeah. that was life-changing. Yeah. And the one thing that stuck for me that you said as a little boy when you nicked the biscuits and you were yeah. you were hauled over the coals by your parents at the time for that, you said... Uh, yes, it was me, and I'm sorry, but I can't guarantee I won't do it again. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I mean, that, the honesty, right, the, honest, so good. But, yeah, but the honesty so in that, the yeah. honesty in that is incredible. Yeah, that's. I'm like, so glad you saw that. Oh, I'm so glad that you get that. Yeah, I just was blown away by that. Really, yeah. is yeah. is amazing. You're doing this amazing piece of work through the Brighton Festival at the moment, which is Tell Me Something About Your Family. Yeah. And I love it. And obviously you've said that you've spent your life watching families. I totally understand that. Yeah. I was pretty amazed at how much I got triggered by that piece of work. Yeah. Yeah. And because... You know, there's so much pressure in society about having the perfect family. Yeah. And families are complex, aren't yeah. they? They are messy. That's the they beauty are... of them, turns out. So just tell us about that piece of work, because I think it's amazing. Well, tellmesomething.co.uk is where I simply ask people to tell me something about family. And it's a world map. And when you tell me something, it doesn't have to be serious. It doesn't have to be, oh, somebody told a great story about about their dad who used to sleepwalk when he was in unfamiliar places (laughs) and he sleptwalked when they went on holiday and he peed in all of the shoes (laughs) of everybody in the house, the kids, the adult, you know, his wife, and she had to buy flip-flops the next day. And that's become the story, the family story, you know, Um, uh, which is, is just funny. But So every person who puts in a little story about their about family it doesn't have to be their family either actually a little light comes out up on the map and now there are it's been up for since this 8th of may um so it's been up for about two weeks just over two weeks 
No, two weeks. And there's over a thousand entries, thousand lights that have lit up, lit up the uh, the map, which is just great. And that's across the world, you know, Ethiopia, Australia, Venezuela, Barbados, you know, all starting in Brighton. So I went down it, the rabbit hole on it yesterday. I was like, literally oh, got completely. There was one comment in there that the family now always says their expression is you've wrecked Christmas because one year one of the girls had not cooked the turkey. It was for the turkey yeah. was all frozen. And it made me remember that we've got in our family, Manan from Salford, yeah. we've got dropped our Vera's. And that's because when she was little, she had two two ice cream cones, and she dropped one of them, yeah. and then she and then this one had no ice cream on it, and yeah. she just went dropped our Vera's. <laughs> so Vera wasn't getting the ice cream; hers was fine. So now, if anything goes on like that, we've dropped our Vera's. Well, I dropped our Vera's. <laughs> dropped our Vera's. That's our family expression. Did you do that because you found that cathartic, or what was well, it? Well, I always spent my time looking through the windows of families who are fully, perfectly dysfunctional, you know, dropping mm. their veras, you know. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, uh, the laughter, the tears, the full lot. And I've always felt like I'm outside it looking in. I've now come to a point in my life that I realise that probably everybody feels like they're outside something. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, uh, and that, that that's a pivotal point in their life. Mm-hmm. But I watched my friends getting married. I watched the funerals. I watched what happens in the pandemic etc and and so as we're coming out of this pandemic i just would like people to tell me something about family because of my experience i do have a feeling that things fall apart what's incredible about this is there's so many positive stories throughout i mean there's some horrendous stories but there are actually the majority are like do you know what lem i need them you know mm-hmm. they drive me crazy they they drive me crazy i ran away from them i you know i just don't need to see them for all year except for one day and i hope it's not christmas <laughs> but i can't do without i can't do without with what i need to do without with <laughs> you know what i mean so there's this and and i think i wanted to i wanted people to share with me what i thought is was true which was that we're all assigned our family and nobody said it was going to be good. And that actually th- this gives us a, an opportunity to really reflect and people have done. So I, 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 I find I can only look at it for so many because I get drawn in and then I get emotional I know because they're very emotional stories. They are. Do you know what? It was a bit life-changing for me actually yesterday when I started to have a look at the site because I struggle with families too. We've got a very small family. Mm. Um, my two kids have got no cousins. Mm. There's no... And then my dad left my mum out of the blue in 2003 overnight. Mm. It was a biggest shock. She was devastated. But I had two kids under, you know, two babies really. But even as a as an adult, to be abandoned in that way by your dad, ultimately he's got another family. You feel that bereavement even as, as, as an adult. And so we've carried that with us. And I just thought it's easy to idealise families, yes. isn't it? And fantasise about them. Yeah. When, then we've all got that shit Absolutely. going on, you know. And what happens as an adult in that case, well, not, not in that case, but as an adult you start to look back and go, wait a minute, what was going on before? That's yeah. what I did with mine, with my foster yeah. parents. You know, I was like, hold on a minute, what were you doing then? You know, yes. how committed were you at this point? And things yeah. start to fall in place and you get this other memory, non-memory. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You get this other relationship with your past and that is, yeah. that's traumatic. I mean. Mm, totally. And then I noticed that you'd said, 
Oh, it was the end of the documentary and you said that you realised as big as the story was for you with finding your mum again, that that wasn't necessarily perfect. That was a complicated... God, no, yeah, wasn't finding it? my mum, yeah. You'd expect maybe that you'd fall into her arms, but by that point, lives are complicated, they're complex, of aren't course, they? Of course, and mothers are complicated and have, have held themselves against the storm that's raged against them for so long. Yeah. And then suddenly, you know, they're in the calmer years, maybe. My mum was in mm-hmm. her 40s when I met her. Her children were in education, etc. And I'm, I turn up all sort of like, you know, all right, can you explain yourself to me? You know, and that's yeah. a really threatening yeah. thing for a child to do to a, the parents yeah. in yeah. any way. Just quickly, let's talk about your foundation, because I know that's a really important piece of work for you, isn't it? Yeah, so, the, the Gold from the Stone Foundation yeah. support mm. the Christmas dinners, which started in Manchester, effectively. And they're Christmas dinners on Christmas Day for people who've been in care, but who've left care, who are between the ages of 18 and um, 27. And it happens on Christmas Day. They have a Christmas dinner on Christmas Day. And our sole job is to get them presents great food. By the way, one of the chefs that we had for years was from Manchester City and Manchester United because they oh, used the same caterers, yeah, the same chef people, I mean. So he used to give up his Christmas day just to come down to get the Christmas dinner ready. That's brilliant. So and he'd come down the so day before wonderful. on Christmas Eve and on Christmas Day. What a guy. Yeah. Um, but that's what it is. That's what the city's about. You know what I mean? Totally. And you see so much of that in you know the last 12 months of the pandemic. I think we've had a real need to feed people. I think yeah, that's yeah. been, you know, yeah, we've really had Manchester. a drive to do that. Yeah. So it's a wonderful foundation and it's just fantastic work. So I'm going to go into, going to ask you a few questions on Manchester now to see okay, what, you, what you can pull up. Favourite view of Manchester? You've discussed a few. Oh, well, I had my 20, um, I had my 50th birthday party at the townhouse on King Street and it was in the middle of summer. It was May 21st, and it was actually the day before the bomb happened. Wow. Yeah, so the the, the contrast of those events Gosh. Um, is quite uh, big, um, yeah. That is a beautiful view there, isn't it, off yeah. that, that terrace? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was just that it was, you know, it was time for sunset, and all my friends were there, and, you know, it was just wonderful. So I'm going to go with that. You know, you could say, yeah, no, I'll go with that. that that's the one. <laughs> And what about favourite places to perform in Manchester? The Green Room would have been the favourite place, but that's now Gorilla, or, and that's yes. now gone, I think, hasn't yeah. it? Well, it's come back. It's, it's come it's back, been saved. Right. Yeah, The Gorilla has come back. Yeah. Um, the Free Trade Hall, you know, which is now the Radisson, which is where I'll yeah. be staying, actually, when I come up for the festival. That was a great, that was a great gig to do. Wonderful the Free Trade there. Hall, man. Yeah, the acoustics we, in that place. <laughs> yeah, and I played with my band Secret Society, which was Rupert Campbell, who started Sankey's Soap with Andy Spiro, and um, Yvonne Shelton, who was married to the keyboard player in Simply Red, and is a brilliant vocalist. Andy Boothman, who who teaches now in Manchester. Um, We played, I think it was Playmates. God, yeah. Yeah, the club Playmates. (laughs) It was a small gig, but it was absolutely packed. And um, that absolutely rocked. Oh, I did a gig at the town hall. Oh, amazing. The town hall for the for Manchester College lecturers, of which there were a thousand. I loved that. 
In the Great Hall. Though. Yeah, in the Great Hall. Yeah, yeah. just yeah, what yeah. a building. I'm literally two minutes from it here. I can see the back of it. I just can't wait for it. It's 2024 now. Yeah. It'll be ready. And that's going to be so, it's going to be a great day when all the hoardings come down. Yeah. Um, can you give me some words to describe a Mancunian? Strong, international, down to worth, cheeky. <laughs> 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 that, that is the right word for sure. <laughs> what do you order at the chippy? Oh, uh, fish, chips and scraps. Scraps. <laughs> yeah, scraps, definitely. Fish and it chips, all... though, definitely scraps. In fact, there's a chippy in Fallowfield who do the best chips, fish and chips, and I can't remember the title. I can see where they are, but I can't remember the title. And what do you miss most about the city when you're not here? Well, I miss the sense of being home. Like, the city feel like very much at home mm-hmm. I think I miss that yeah and I miss it when I come to Manchester and then I miss it when people talk about Manchester who are from Manchester when I'm not there yeah I, I, sometimes I find myself being jealous of people who, who, who've <laughs> lived there and I'm like oh you know um how do you feel when you get on the train at Euston coming back oh oh I love it yeah I mean I just love it you-, I, you know mm. I do my work I get back on the train I go you know but um, I just love it. I, you know, I always, when I've got things at the University of Manchester, I walk from Piccadilly to the university mm. because I love the walk. I love yeah. just feeling the city, feeling yeah. the city. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. Just finally, you talk about hugging the bruise and I love yeah. that expression. And I know that you were saying that in relation to your family and what you've, your upbringing, what you've learned to accept. Yeah. And it just, just stuck with me and I'm, going to start hugging the bruise I think but what would you say to the listeners now who are all hugging a big bruise in Manchester mm. right now have you got any words to make people feel that it's all going to come back and we'll be back together and Manchester will thrive again well it's the nature of Manchester if you look at its history if you look at um, the Pankhurst Sylvia Pankhurst who's from Manchester if you look at how Manchester stood up against the slave trade and you see the statues of the connection to America when when they did that. If you look at the miners and the musicians and the painters and the designers and, you know, the people in property like like Tom, getting back, getting other city back is part of our DNA. So we're going to be okay. Thanks for joining me, and I really look forward to seeing you at the Manchester International Festival. I look forward to seeing you too, Lisa Morton. Please say hello to me. I will be there. I won't miss it. (laughs) Thank you so much, Lem. Lem Cisse helped build this city by celebrating the miners and the musicians and the painters and the designers, by putting his hand on the ground and hearing the bass lines from the night before and by knowing that when it's too beautiful, shocking or hurtful for words, there is poetry. We Build This City is out every Thursday when you'll hear from another incredible Greater Mancunian. If you want to find out more about how you can work with us at Roland Ransfield to improve your relationships, build your values and leave a legacy, then head to rdpr.co.uk or give us a call on the number we've had for the past 25 years, 0161 236 1122. Thank you and see you next time.